Yeah, he mentioned the 50-minute thing because you know, I, I happened to write my sermon notes out in, a, in an app that has this feature where it actually estimates how long it will be when you actually uh, go to preach it. So I, I am curious to see how accurate that ends up being. Um, <clears throat> as Mike mentioned, um, <laughs> we will be wrapping up the book of Jeremiah today. And it is the second of you know, this, this two-part, just broad overview of the book that we've uh, decided to undertake. So, you know, after we, we spent seven weeks kind of just simmering in the book of Jonah, which is only four chapters, we're trying to cover this 52-chapter book in this big gulp. But it's just kind of, obviously, we're not going through every chapter and verse of Jeremiah. We're just trying to get an overall picture of the two. Uh, we broke it up into kind of two categories. And last week, Mike covered what he calls, you know, the, the doom and gloom uh, portion of Jeremiah, kind of the 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 darker side of it. And he joked that, you know, I get to cover all the, the happy and positive, uh, hopeful aspects of the book. And it's true, because that's kind of how we broke it up. And so this morning, we're going to be focusing more on some of the encouraging passages and, and how they point forward to the Messiah. Because even there, and if you if we're looking at it in those two categories, uh, I would say that definitely the major, the bigger portion, the bigger uh, half is is maybe, and I didn't. It's it's more than a half. There's a lot of uh, just um, prophecy against Israel. It's just very dark and depressing, and other nations as well. But it also does have uh, smaller portions, but very important portions that are promises that are kind of it's a ray of sunshine it's a glimmer of hope that there will be a light at the end of the tunnel and mike did give us a little sneak peek of this towards the end uh with you know one of the the most quoted verses um that you see all over the place and it's probably one of the most out of context quoted verses but it still does it speaks to the character of god and that was jeremiah 29 um 11 through 14 that says, for I know the plans I have for you. This is the Lord's declaration. Plans for your well-being, not for disaster, to give you a future and a hope. You will call to me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. I will be found by you. This is the Lord's declaration. And I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and places where I banished you. This is the Lord's declaration. I will restore you to the place from which I deported you. So that, that passage, it sounds very nice, right? That's, that's hopeful. That's a, a positive promise, a positive prophecy. But how are they going to get from A to B? How are they going to go from this certain doom to this so-called future and, and hope? And we do know that from Jeremiah's perspective, if from his point on that timeline that, that uh, Mike was showing us last week, that the next couple generations are going to experience uh, tumultuous times and disaster uh, will come for Judah. God does have plans for disaster in the short term. Uh, from Jeremiah's perspective. And in fact, God wants to make sure of it. He wants to make sure this 
disaster is going to happen. So I want to just give us a, a quick reminder of what we looked at last week with the, the severity of God's judgment on Israel at this time. Because they've gone so far in their rebellion against God that there's really no relenting at this point from what's going to come. And if you have your Bible open, go ahead and turn to Jeremiah uh, chapter 11. I am going to be jumping around quite a bit today. Um, I'm going to even be reading probably more passages uh, from outside of Jeremiah than inside of Jeremiah. But I am going to come back to this chapter a couple times in Jeremiah. So Jeremiah chapter 11, verse 11, says, Therefore, this is what the Lord says. I'm about to bring on them disaster that they cannot escape. They will cry out to me, but I will not hear them. And a, a few chapters uh, before that, in chapter 7, verse 16, God says to Jeremiah, As for you, do not pray for these people. Do not offer a cry or a prayer on their behalf. And do not beg me, for I will not listen to you. And if you're still in chapter 11, just look down to verse 14. He reiterates this, basically saying the same thing again in 11:14. As for you, do not pray for these people. Do not raise up a cry or a prayer on their behalf, for I will not be listening when they call out to me at the time of their disaster. It's almost word for word a repetition of what he said before. And if, it, if anything is repeated, that usually means it's important. So that, that idea that God is telling Jeremiah, do not pray to these uh, for these people. We're going to come back to that. Um, but for now, that's just kind of the reminder of the doom and gloom uh, portion of Jeremiah that we're dealing with. And, and yet we have the juxtaposition of these other passages, like the one we first read, uh, 29, 11 through 14. Um, so here I want to read another passage regarding this, this future hope that God is, is promising. This is going to be in chapter 31, starting in Verse 31, 31, 31. Look, the days are coming. This is the Lord's declaration. When I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. This one will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors on the day I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, even though I am their master the Lord's declaration. Instead, this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, the Lord's declaration. I will put my teaching within them and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will one teach his neighbor or his brother saying, know the Lord, for they will all know me from the least to the greatest of them. This is the Lord's declaration. For I will forgive their iniquity and never again Remember their sin. So here, Yahweh, God, is making this declaration that he's going to make a new covenant. This covenant is going to be unlike the covenant that Israel and Judah have broken over and over. And it's almost like he's saying, you know, I'm going to renew our marriage vows, but I'm going to make it with a different kind of vow because you couldn't keep the first one. And he starts talking about forgiving their iniquity. Why is he going to forgive their iniquity? 
not because of anything that they do, but because he will put his teaching in them. And they will know him because of what he does. I think that's profound. And it's encouraging. But again, I, I go back to that same question of how. How is God going to accomplish this? How do we get from where Israel and Judah are in, in Jeremiah's day to this? Well, the answer, of course, uh, I think is sort of obvious. It's, the answer is Jesus. You know, he is the promised Messiah who's going to bring out uh, uh, bring about uh, the, the ultimate fulfillment of these prophecies of bringing a new covenant. But I, I want us to look a little bit deeper um, into the logistics of, of why Jesus is the answer and how Jesus is the answer. And there's something that really stood out to me in Jeremiah as we were studying it, and it's really stuck in my head. And even just last week hearing um, uh, Mike sharing from Jeremiah, it's been, you know, it was really stuck in my head. I've been pondering it, pondering it. And I think it's really key to unlocking a major theme like Mike uh, alluded to of the whole Old Testament and New Testament, the whole Bible, and, and, and to understanding uh, the necessity and the role of the Messiah in fulfilling the hope that is spoken of in Jeremiah. And it's that fact, again, that both in chapter 7, verse 16, and again in chapter 11, verse 14, God tells Jeremiah twice not to pray for these people. That it, what? <laughs> Don't pray for these people. And I know Mike brought this up last week, but I think it's, it's worth exploring a little bit further. Do not pray for these people. Do not raise up a cry or a prayer on their behalf, for I will not be listening when they call out to me at the time of their disaster. And we know Jeremiah was a priest, right? He was introduced as such in verse 1 of Jeremiah, he's introduced that the words of Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah, one of the priests living in Anathoth in the territory of Benjamin. So that fact alone, that Jeremiah was a priest, makes this command that God gives him somewhat odd, I think, somewhat jarring. Because as a priest, his job is to communicate with God and to make sacrifices to God and to stand before God on behalf of the people. Standing between God and the people of Israel as an intercessor. That's what, that's what an intercessor uh, is. The role of an intercessor was key to living as God's people. Key to their covenant relationship with God was having this priestly intercessor. Because it's how sin is covered, how uh, sin is forgiven and how God's will was communicated to the people through the priest. And yet, God told Jeremiah not to intercede on behalf of these people. So that alone makes it stand out. But there's another reason I think that it really stuck out to me, because, yes, it's significant that you know he was a priest, and just that's backwards because he's telling him not to do his job. But I think what's even more truly profound about this is that it reveals kind of an underlying truth about how about God and how he relates to humans. Because by God telling Jeremiah not to pray, he's implying very clearly, it's not subtle, it's a very overt implication that there is an inherent value 
and a power to prayerful intercession and action. I want to say that again. There is an inherent value and power to intercessory prayer and action. And the intercessory role of a priest involved a lot of you know, ritual practices and traditions and kind of just going through the motions of, of performing that role. But the underlying purpose of a priest goes much, much deeper. And I think it's clear that God did not establish this role purely as a formality. We see in Jeremiah that God has actually chosen to allow humans to participate in and interact with his own decision-making process. And that's kind of mind-blowing, this idea of the all-powerful God of the universe being seemingly swayed, if you will, by human intercessors. That's the idea that I kind of want to explore today because it is key to understanding the nature of the hope that God is promising in the book of Jeremiah. So to understand this further, uh, before we're looking forward, uh, we are going to go back and uh, look at some the pattern that's been established so far through the Old Testament story. And last, Mike, uh, last week, Mike did bring us uh, through the Old Testament uh, of tracking kind of the pattern of sin and depravity. Uh, so I want to take another review of that narrative of scripture, but from just a slightly different perspective and looking at that idea of um, intercession. And of course, it begins uh, always with Adam and Eve in the garden. When they rebelled against God, I think sometimes we can picture their rebellion somewhat like a, a kid stealing a cookie out of a, a cookie jar. You know, it, it's a blatant rebellion, but somewhat childish. You know, it's, it's just a fruit, you know. However, I, I do think the implications of their sin are far more profound, uh, which is why the effects of this, the fallout of that sin is also so profound. And I think maybe a more helpful analogy for understanding this, the type of rebellion that they uh, did, uh, rather than, you know, stealing a cookie, I would say maybe imagine an ambassador for a country, let's say a U.S. ambassador to a foreign country, a powerful foreign country, deciding to conspire and commit treason against their own country, and that then leading to a fallout of, of massive proportions. So obviously, it's not a perfect analogy, obviously, but I think just that, that idea of rebellion and treason and the fallout of what happens when treason is committed uh, is a little bit closer to the reality of what happened in the garden. Because remember what God told the humans after creating them. This is in Genesis chapter 1, uh, verses 27 and 28. It says, God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every creature that crawls on the earth. So God created the whole world, the whole universe. And then on this planet, he created a hospitable place that was hospitable for life and created this living thing that he called human to represent him to the rest of creation. Not just representing like an image on, the, on a wall or a statue, 
but as active participants in ruling his creation. I'd say that's a pretty important job. And that's the job that they messed up. Because God's ambassadors on earth committed treason. And that led to a downward spiral of violence and depravity that culminated, of course, in God then flooding the earth, hitting the reset button on humanity. And we see, we, and we saw this last week, but Genesis 6, 5 tells us why God did that. When the Lord saw that human wickedness was widespread on the earth and that every inclination of the human mind was nothing but evil all the time. But he saved Noah, and he saved Noah's family. And that was, that was the hope in that part of that story. And Noah's name actually means rest. Noah means rest. And in the story, he's depicted as being the hope of giving the earth rest from the curse that was incurred by what happened in the garden. But... Towards the end of the story, he and his family end up being somewhat of a disappointment. Humanity isn't fixed uh, just by hitting the reset button. And that's why God promises never to do it again. Um, But he doesn't make this promise because he knows humans have learned their lesson uh, and are going to behave now. He makes this promise because he knows they haven't. And they never will. So compare the verse we just read, Genesis 6-5, God's reason for flooding the earth is that the inclination of the human mind was nothing but evil all the time. Compare that with Genesis chapter 8, verses 20 and 21. It says, Noah built an altar to the Lord. He took some of every kind of clean animal and every kind of clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. When the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, he said to himself, I will never again curse the ground because of human beings, even though... The inclination of the human heart is evil from youth onward. And I will never again strike down every living thing as I have done. So he flooded the earth because of the inclination of the the human mind and heart. Uh, I I think there's a, a, but at the end of the story, he makes this promise in spite of the human heart slash mind. I think there's, there's a glimmer of hope here. Because God is revealing this attitude of love and compassion for humanity, even though he hasn't fully revealed yet here in the story uh, his plan for redemption. But the story of Noah itself is a reflection of God's plan of redemption, uh, but that's really only understood in hindsight, how Noah was was redeemed and uh, brought through the waters. But one other thing to notice about this passage in Genesis 8, 20 and 21, this is depicting God is having a reaction to something that Noah did, resulting in a favorable outcome for all of humanity, not just Noah and his family. And it doesn't come out and say that Noah was specifically interceding on behalf of humankind, but this still, it sets a precedence for intercession as well as uh, some of the covenantal relationships that God will set up uh, to come. And meanwhile, you know, after, after Noah, the, the fallout of the original treason continued, and we saw humans continue to try to take matters into their own hands, kind of become their own gods, to build their own kingdoms. And the Tower of Babylon becomes iconic for this desire. It was literally an attempt to build themselves up and elevate themselves to God's level. But God 
foiled this attempt. He scattered the people. But he did allow Babylon to become a large and powerful empire down the road, which is interesting, very relevant to the exile, clearly. But it was out of Babylon, early Babylon, long before the exile, that God called Abraham. Abraham was from that region of Babylon. He called him to leave and become set apart from uh, the, the wickedness that Babylon represents. And like Noah, you know, separating him from the sea of chaos and violence being inflicted on humanity by humanity. But this time promising that Abraham's descendants would somehow bless the whole earth. So the hope builds from there. Not only will God not just wipe everything out, he actually has a plan to stop humans from drowning themselves in the flood of their own destruction. So remember, we're going through the Old Testament here to track the concept of intercession. uh, Because in the time of Jeremiah, the nation needed an intercessor, and Jeremiah wasn't it. He was commanded not to be it. Uh, But with Abraham, we get to really our first example of intercession. And it's in Genesis chapter 18, uh, starting in verse 16. It's like with Abraham, God is slowly redeeming this idea of allowing humans to be responsible and influential, though still flawed, partners with God in ruling his creation. So Genesis 18, 16 starts with, The men got up from there and looked out over Sodom. And Abraham was walking with them to see them off. Then the Lord said, Should I hide what I'm about to do from Abraham? Abraham is about to become, or is to become a great and powerful nation, and all the nations of the earth will be blessed through him. For I have chosen him so that he will command his children and his house after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just. This is how the Lord will fulfill to Abraham what he promised him. This is literally him deciding to include him in his decision-making process. And then the Lord said, the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is immense. And their sin is extremely serious. I will go down to see if what they have done justifies the cry that has come up to me. If if not, I will find out. The men turned from there and went to Sodom while Abraham remained standing before the Lord. Abraham stepped forward and said, will you really sweep away the righteous from the wicked? What if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it away instead of sparing the place for the sake of the 50 righteous people who are in it? You could not possibly do such a thing to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. You could not possibly do that. Won't the judge of the whole earth do what is just? The Lord said, if I find 50 righteous people in the city of Sodom, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Then Abraham answered, Since I have ventured to speak to my Lord, even though I am dust and ashes, suppose the fifty righteous lack five. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? He replied, I will not destroy it if I find forty-five there. Then he spoke to him again, Suppose forty are found there. He answered, I will not do it on account of forty. Then he said, 
let not my Lord be angry, and I will speak further. Suppose 30 are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. Then he said, since I have ventured to speak to my Lord, suppose 20 are found there. He replied, I will not destroy it on account of 20. Then he said, let my Lord not be angry, and I will speak one more time. Suppose 10 are found there. He answered, I will not destroy it on account of 10. When the Lord had finished speaking with Abraham, he departed, and Abraham returned to his place. Now, obviously, this passage is really fascinating for a number of reasons, and there's so much that we can't you know, go into this morning. And it is probably worth noting that God did, in fact, end up destroying Sodom and Gomorrah, although Abraham's nephew Lot and his family were allowed to escape. The main thing I want to focus on in this passage is just this back and forth that Abraham has with Yahweh. It's profound. You know, Abraham, he approaches God with humility. He steps forward, it says, to speak his mind. And he he ventures to speak, uh, even though he is but dust and ashes. It's like, I think he knows in this moment how ridiculous it sounds or how ridiculous it looks for a human to be so bold as to offer his opinion to the Almighty. And yet at the same time, he recognizes, he must, that there, there must be some value to that. He obviously thinks at least there's a chance that he will have some influence on God's decision because it really wouldn't be worth sticking his neck out otherwise. And even though ultimately God does destroy the city, uh, the, the point is that he was willing to have that conversation with Abraham. It's almost like there's a negotiation that takes place here. And I know that that's kind of a theological rabbit hole to go down with that. Um, but for now, what's important in this conversation, in the context of how we're relating it to Jeremiah, it, it, it's that this conversation that Abraham has creates a category for us in the biblical imagination for intercession. Human intercession. So humans interceding, standing before God on behalf of other humans. And God not only allowing it, but actually inviting it. He initiated the conversation. Okay, so now we're going to go on to the next stop. Um, And I I hope you can see how each of these stories are kind of building on each other uh, with kind of rounding out this concept. One of the most critical points we see this happening fully in action is with Moses. I think this is actually the most critical point of intercession in all of the Old Testament. Uh, And the whole story that surrounds it is very pivotal in the history of of Israel. So if you want to read along, uh, turn to Exodus 32. Read another uh, pretty good-sized passage. I'm going to read the first 14 verses of, of Exodus 32. And leading up to this chapter, there have been 12 chapters that came before it in which God has outlined the terms of the covenant that he's making with Israel. In other words, the the marriage vows that he's making with Israel. In chapter 19, Moses goes up to Mount Sinai. And in chapter 20, we get the Ten Commandments. And then, you know, the rest of the laws and ordinances that come all after that uh, through chapter 31. Chapter 31 ends with, uh, when he finished speaking with Moses, uh, 
I'm sorry, chapter 30 ends with, when he finished speaking with Moses on Mount Sinai, he gave him the two tablets of the testimony, stone tablets inscribed by the finger of God. So that kind of caps off that section. And then chapter 31, when the people saw that Moses delayed in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said to him, come, make gods for us who will go before us. Because this Moses, this man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. Aaron replied to them, take off the gold rings that are on the ears of your wives, your sons and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the gold rings that were on their ears and brought them to Aaron. He took the gold from them, fashioned it with an engraving tool, and made it into an image of a calf. Then they said, Israel, these are your gods who brought you up from the land of Egypt. And when Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of it and made an announcement. There will be a festival to Yahweh tomorrow. Early the next morning, they arose, offered burnt offerings, and presented the fellowship offerings. The people sat down to eat and drink and got up to party. Yahweh spoke to Moses, Go down at once, for your people you brought, you brought up from the land of Egypt have acted corruptly. Kind of funny, because God's the one that really brought them out. But he's, It's like when our cats are acting out. It's like, Ellie, your cat is doing something. But your people your, you brought up from the land of Egypt is acting, have acted corruptly. They have quickly turned from the way I commanded them. They have made for themselves an image of a calf. They have bowed down to it, sacrificed to it, and said, Israel, these are your gods who brought you up from the land of Egypt. Yahweh also said to Moses, I have seen this people, and they are indeed a stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone so that my anger can burn against them and I can destroy them. Then I will make you into a great nation. Now here we're getting to the relevant part, but I wanted you to see the context of what leads up to this. But... Moses sought the favor of Yahweh, his God. Yahweh, why does your anger burn against your people you brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and a strong hand? Why should the Egyptians say he brought them out with an evil intent to kill them in the mountains and eliminate them from the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce anger and relent concerning this disaster planned for your people. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. You swore to them by yourself and declared, I will make your offering, offspring as numerous as the stars of the sky, and I will give your offspring all this land that I have promised, and they will inherit it forever. So Yahweh relented concerning the disaster he had said would bring, he would bring on his people. So again, this is another event that is just totally ripe for discussion. There's a lot to talk about here. This is, again, just a pivotal breaking point in the history of Israel. The sin of the golden calf is a lot like, a, it's almost a repetition of Adam and Eve's sin in the garden. It's Israel's original sin that defiled their brand new covenant with God. A covenant that had 10 core commandments at its foundation, the first of which was to not worship other gods. You could say, thinking of, of covenant and marriage as a covenant as a very close analogy to God's covenant with Israel. You could say that, you know, the first core value of marriage is fidelity. Actually, I think the first core value is unity, but 
unity is achieved by fidelity. You know, other things factor in to that to build unity, but the one thing that will immediately fracture unity of marriage is infidelity. And here we see Israel, like a bride on her wedding day, deciding that her groom is taking too long to write his vows, so she decides to just find a, a stranger to carry her across the threshold and into the bedroom. That's a disturbing thought, and that's exactly what is being described here, which is why God's outrage is perfectly understandable. He tells Moses, just leave me alone so my anger can burn against these people and destroy them. And he has every right to do so. And he even tells Moses, I'm going to make you into a great nation. Which means he would still be fulfilling his promise to Abraham through the remnant of Moses. Because Moses is a descendant of Abraham. So if he just wipes everyone but Moses out, he can still start over with Moses. Which would almost be like a repetition of the flood. But Moses pleads with him. You might say he, he reasons with God. He provides an argument. Just like with Abraham and, and, and with Sodom, but even more so here, I think it's fascinating to just ponder and study the exact nuances of the conversation uh, they have here. I've literally listened to hours of podcast episodes just talking about this and dissecting this. But for now, again, the point that the conversation even took place at all is amazing. And then even more amazingly, Moses seems to have you know, changed God's mind. Because it starts off with God saying, leave me alone, let me destroy them. And then Moses gives his argument and it ends with, so Yahweh relented concerning this disaster. So this is an intercession at a huge scale that results in the preservation of a nation. Of course, then when Moses actually went down and saw what happened, he had some some wrath of his own to lay out on the people. And, and there still was a reckoning that took place that day, but there was also salvation. And the people were dedicated to God that day in spite of their sin because of Moses' inter intercession. And there are a lot of other examples to look at um, of intercession in the Old Testament. It's a fascinating study, but I'm just going to give you one more uh, from the book of Job. And this is a little bit of a shorter one, but it's in Job Chapter 42, verse 7, if you want to read along. And this is towards the end of the story. This is the very end of the story of Job. Uh, after Job has been stripped of everything, he's lost his wealth, wealth, his family, he's lost his health, he's been left with nothing but these friends around him who tell him it's all his fault. You know, you brought this on yourself somehow. He must have sinned. And Job is angry. He gets angry with God, uh, and he just wants to give up at this point, but he hasn't lost his faith in God, and he hasn't cursed God. And here we pick up after Yahweh has had a chat with Job, and he's basically saying, don't question me, Job. My plans, my the universe is way bigger and more complex than you could possibly understand, so just, just trust me. Um, and of course, that's just a really brief summary. The conversation God has with Job is actually really epic and sounds way better in his words, so you should Read it sometime. Um, but after he talks to Job, God then turns to Job's friends and addresses them um, in verse 7. Yahweh said to Eliphaz, the Temanite, one of Job's friends, My wrath has been kindled against you and against the two of your friends. For you have not spoken to me what is right as my servant Job has. 
So then, take for yourselves seven bulls and seven rams, and go to my servant Job and offer a burnt offering for yourselves. And my servant Job will pray for you, for I will certainly accept his prayer, so that it will not be done with you according to your folly. For you have not spoken to me what is right, as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the Temanite and Bildad the Shuhite and Zophar the Namathite went and did just as Yahweh had told them, and Yahweh accepted Job's prayer. And Yahweh returned Job's fortune when he prayed to him on behalf of his friends. Thus, Yahweh increased all that Job had twice as much as before. So why did I want to include this example? We have here Job in this story. He's a righteous person. And the whole book is about God proving to the accuser Satan, that Job is, in fact, righteous. So then we have this righteous person suffering innocently and surrounded by people who have made God angry. And at the end, God says that Job will pray for them so that he will spare them. And he, he doesn't tell his friends to pray. He does tell them to make sacrifices, but he doesn't want to hear from them. And the reason he's going to forgive them, he says, so he wants to hear from Job to intercede on their behalf. So through both sacrifice and intercession, in this case, these men are saved from the consequences of their folly. And that's the culmination of the book of Job is, is this moment here. And it's even, I have to mention too, that last, very last verse, Job's fortune is returned when he prayed to him. And, and the grammar there is really while he prayed. So in the moment where he was interceding and asking God to forgive his friends, he still didn't have his wealth. It was restored during his act of intercession. And I'm sure you can see where I'm going with this. You know, in, in all of these examples, all of these men who acted as intercessors, they had their flaws. You know, Abraham, he made some big mistakes throughout his journey, but his moment of intercession came at a moment where his relationship with, with God it was not strained in that moment. They were talking almost like, like friends would. Abraham realized how little he was compared to God, but the conversation itself is almost like a conversation between friends. And even more so when Moses interceded on behalf of the whole nation of Israel, that was kind of the peak of his unity with God. When he was representing more closely than anyone else we see in the Old Testament, what the ideal ultimate function of a human is living in unity with God and representing him to others. I mean, his face was actually glowing at one point. He was so close to God. That's like, that's just on another level. It sounds superhuman, uh, but he still was human and that's important, but he also made mistakes. You know, and he wasn't even allowed to enter the promised land. So, we see this role and this function of intercessor and how important and how valuable it is. And we see that God is also adamant about humans playing this role for each other. And intercession is a selfless act and it's a noble one. However, in order to reverse the fallout of that original treason in the garden, we we needed a more perfect, a more reliable intercessor. And someone, you know, someone even better than Moses, one who is always perfectly 
righteous, in perfect unity with God, who will always be alive and not mortal, um, and always be interceding because the rest of us are always in need of it. And in the Old Testament, you know, Moses is the one who got the closest. But that still wasn't enough. Uh, But in Deuteronomy, the last of the five books of the Pentateuch ends with this. In chapter 34, the very end, no prophet has arisen again in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. He was unparalleled for all the signs and wonders the Lord sent him to do against the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh, to all his officials, to all his land, and for all the mighty acts of power and terrifying deeds that Moses performed in the sight of all Israel. So by the time we get to Jeremiah, they're still looking for that next Moses uh, to be a great prophet, or even you know the next David, even at this point, to be a great king. And that hope, that hope of a coming Messiah is the hope that Jeremiah points to. And in some of the coming weeks, we'll be actually looking at the book of Isaiah and diving into some of the, the specific prophecies that get um, give us more details about how the Messiah will be identified. Of course, we know that it's Jesus, but back then, you know, the, the promised chosen one, the Messiah, was, it was an enigmatic figure. So every specific prophecy about him was very important. And we'll eventually look at how many of those prophecies do connect to Jesus. But for now, I want to go back to the idea that Jeremiah was a priest who was essentially being told by God not to do his job, not to intercede for the people. That must have made no sense to Jeremiah in that moment. But he trusted God. And I think given how traumatic this message of doom and gloom would have been for Jeremiah himself, I think the message of hope and encouragement that is brought in here must have been reassuring reassuring to Jeremiah that God did have, in fact, a bigger plan and that this wasn't the end, that this was all part of a bigger story. And I'm going to cheat. Uh, I'm going to skip ahead just a little bit to Jeremiah, I, uh, to Isaiah. I couldn't resist bringing in just one verse from Isaiah because it's just so relevant to what we're talking about here. Now, Jeremiah was told not to intercede. But Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, actually came before Jeremiah. So maybe he was able to read Isaiah. I don't know. Um, but he, he, if he was able to read Isaiah, maybe he would be encouraged to read this prophecy about the Messiah. In Isaiah 53, 12, it says, Therefore I will give him the many as a portion, and he will receive the mighty as a spoil, because he willingly submitted to death and was counted among the rebels. Yet he bore the sin of many and interceded for the rebels. So God did have a plan, a plan to provide a perfect intercessor at the perfect time who would stand before God and intercede for anyone who would stand behind him. But an intercessor must also understand the plight for which he is pleading or interceding, which is why God himself became a human and and dwelt among us. He put himself between us and his wrath. He took the full penalty of our sin on himself as a human, thereby becoming an eternal and perfect high priest. And Hebrews 
7 talks about this, how Jesus is the priest to end all priests, basically. Hebrews 7, uh, starting in verse 23, says, Now many have become Levitical priests. That's what started way back with Moses and, and the tribe of Levi. Many have become Levitical priests since they are prevented by death from remaining in office. Saying essentially we've had many different ones because they die. <laughs> but because he remains forever, talking about Jesus, he holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him since he always lives to intercede for them. For this is the kind of high priest we need, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He doesn't need to offer sacrifices every day as high priests do, first for their own sins and then for those of the people. He did this once for all time when he offered himself. For the law appoints as high priests men who are weak, but the promise of the oath, which came after the law, appoints a son who has been perfected forever. Another chapter in Hebrews, uh, going back to chapter 4, talks about, you know, it, it reassures us that, yes, Jesus is immortal, like we just saw in that passage, but, that, but Christ is far from inhuman. He was and is fully human. Hebrews 4, 14 and through 16 say, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus is the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way as we are, as we are yet without sin. Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness so that we may receive mercy and find grace to, us, to help us in time of need. What an incredible gift. We have a human intercessor, a human priest to intercede for us and stand between us and God's wrath. And then to take this just one step further, Jesus gave us his spirit to actively intercede for every one of us continually. And we see this in Romans 8.26. In the same way, the Spirit also helps us in our weakness, because we do not know what to pray for as we should. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with inexpressible groanings, and he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Of course, just like with pretty much any passage in Romans that you look at, the context of those two verses is much broader and it would take a long time to fully cover. But one aspect of the context which Paul is, in which Paul is saying this is that we do have a future hope. A future hope in which we inherit eternal life alongside Jesus. And in the meantime, between now and then, we have the Spirit to make up for our shortcomings. That's incredibly comforting. That even when we don't know how to pray or what to pray, that the Spirit is interceding for us. And that brings me to my final point. Uh, I, I don't have a bullet list of you know, application points for this message. Um, my hope was to mainly just enrich your understanding of, and, and appreciation for the role of intercession 
in the story of the Bible, but also how it's key to understanding the hope that's promised in Jeremiah. But there is one last stop on this tour on the topic of prayer, because the New, the New Testament doesn't really let us off the hook here. You know, there is a relevant call to action here that I think is important to pay attention to. Yes, Paul says the Spirit prays for us, but that does not mean that we, sh- we shouldn't be praying anyway. Ephesians 6, 18 and 19 say this pretty clearly. Pray at all times in the Spirit with every prayer and request and stay alert with all perseverance and intercession for all the saints. Pray also for me that the message may be given to me when I open my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel. So did you, did you catch that? He's saying that we need to stay alert with all perseverance and intercession. So in keeping with the patterns set from the beginning of creation, God is calling his people to be active participants in his work. And we talk about that a lot, and I think we often emphasize, you know, outreach or spreading the gospel or doing good works, you know, taking care of the needy, etc. That's all part of being participants uh, in God's work, and those are all good and necessary things. But I think we tend to often, at least I know I do often, uh, tend to forget about the simple, but powerful act of prayerful intercession. You know, Jeremiah was told not to do it, but we are under no such restriction. We are told to do it. But one final note on, on this is that you know Paul in Ephesians, he's saying here to pray for the saints, right? Who are the saints? The church, all believers, Christians the sisterhood and brotherhood of the global church and the local church. It's all of us. That's the the saints. Okay, that makes sense. That makes me feel warm and fuzzy. I like to pray for all of you guys. But Jesus himself made a much more radical statement. He said to pray for those who persecute you. And you know he's not saying to pray that they get hit by a bus. <laughs> the context in which he's saying to pray for those who persecute you makes it very clear that he's teaching us to love our enemies. It's in Matthew 5, 38 to 47. This is the last passage I'll read for this morning. It says, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, don't resist an evildoer. On the contrary, if anyone slaps you on your right cheek, turn, also, turn the other to him also. As for the one who wants to sue you and take away your shirt, let him have your coat as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to the one who asks you, and don't turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You have said, you've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward will you have? Don't even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what are you doing out of the ordinary? Don't even the Gentiles do the same? Now that that lesson to love your enemies, that, that sounds kind of familiar to a series we just did, doesn't it? Uh, Can you imagine if Jonah heard Jesus saying this? I don't think he would have liked it much. 
Uh, but we, you know, we are blessed that we are not persecuted even remotely in the sense that the first century Christians were or like the Jews were. But this is still a very important reminder, I think, um, like Mike alluded to earlier. You know, it's a time when, especially in this season where political tensions are extremely high and, and charged and there's just general animosity, uh, whether it's political or, you know, coronavirus or, you know, just regardless of what it's about, there's a lot of animosity that runs rampant um, in our society, even sometimes among brothers and sisters in Christ, which is the last place that should be seen. Of course, you know, that's not to say that we shouldn't use our civic rights and responsibilities to seek justice and truth through our our political system. Of course, we should do that. We have that privilege. Uh, the Jews really didn't, nor did the first century Christians have that privilege, but we should do so as with everything in a humble and loving manner. And when we feel you know, opposed or offended, or even if we feel oppressed or persecuted, we should respond not with self-righteous indignation and rage, rather with selfless intercession and prayer that comes from a heart that truly loves God and loves others, including our enemies. So my final words to you are, let us not take the gift of God's intercession on our behalf for granted, nor take our responsibility to intercede for our fellow humans lightly. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the incredible gift of intercession. It's mind-boggling that you've chosen to use us humans, even while in our sin, you have chosen to draw us to you and use us for your purposes and include us in your work. Lord, I pray that you would reveal to us the ways in which we can do that, and the ways in which we can be interceding because Christ has interceded for us, that we can boldly approach your throne and make petitions to you. Lord, help us to be selfless. Help us to love as you have loved us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. (laughs) The uh, timer was pretty spot on. It's flashing at me that I'm too